Good morning. Uh, no matter who you are, no matter where you are on your spiritual journey, you are welcome here. So Holly and I are going to co-teach this class, and we decided that um, I'm going to do an introduction, mm -hmm. and then I'm going home. Okay. <laughs> and then you're going to do an introduction, and then we're going to see what the heaven happens. And then have me dance in front of everyone. I didn't like think that. about that, yeah. but... Nothing weird. Yeah. I, um, I want to continually thank St. Paul's for making it possible for us to have ordinary life mm -hmm. and um, the freedom that we have to do the kind of teaching that happens here. I want to thank you for, for being here. And... Um, so Holly and I were talking about today uh, about what we might do, uh, and um, one of the first things in thinking about it, we came up with a title, and the title is Truth is Knocking at the Door. Let's open it. And, and so um, I'm going to give a brief, really brief introduction, and... and um, you know, we are, we are being influenced, both of us, but from different sources about what's called the new story, the new cosmology, new writings and insights that are being uncovered um, in the world of cosmology and astrophysics and, and all of that. My interest, of course, is in what's going on in new understandings of spirituality, particularly in the Christian arena, about how, as Moore would, would, would say, we have to rethink everything, our understandings of God and prayer and the origin of Scripture and all that. And several of you have mentioned to me that you have been reading Rabbi Jesus, and I'm really grateful for that. It's not a difficult book to read, but it will give you an idea of some of the really creative work that's happening in, in, in uh, the Jesus' work. Um, so I thought of this cartoon. I didn't know if you saw that. <laughs> I didn't see it when I was reviewing Where do you get your ideas? Where do they come from? So... Um, I want by a show of hands to see how many of you have ever seen this painting. Show of hands. That's a lot. Mm -hmm. So uh, this is Holman Hunt's painting um, called um, The Light of the World. I grew up in a church where this painting was in almost every classroom in the church. And I was going to take a tour of the sanctuary building, but it's in such a, a state of absolute disarray. Um, I'll be so glad when that's, that's finished. But I'm sure this painting was hanging, uh, hanging there. The more original version of the painting looks like that. And if you think that Holman Hunt didn't have a, maybe too much to do, you can get all those versions. <laughs> Go to the internet and you can find out a lot about where the painting is hung, how it has been used. At times, churches and museums have charged people to, to see it. But this is the version that we all grew up with. And um, in Sunday school, I learned that this painting represents Jesus standing at the door of the human heart knocking. And you will notice, as my Sunday school teacher said, there is not a door handle on the outside. It has to be opened from within. So if we're going to be open to the truth, it's going to be us that has to open the door. One of the most noticeable things about this painting that has been so influential in the lives of so many people is that Jesus is a white guy. This is no small matter. Because having a white Jesus and a white God has shaped our country. So... <clears throat> I can't read it. 
<laughs> so there I was, the only white guy in Jerusalem. <laughs> and Jesus and Krishna are having a conversation. And he's saying, I should have made one of those nobody can depict me rules. They always make me fat. That's Buddha. I'm sorry. And Jesus said, tell me about it. I've been a blonde white dude for like 2,000 years. <laughs> then a New Yorker cartoon that says, all guys, all white. Yes, we're all white, but we're post-racial white. Mm. It's a myth that we live by. And then uh, this came somewhere after Harvey. So I think one of the things that, that is truthful for us is having to uh, face up to the fact that we live in a culture where there are three unconscious but very, very powerful rules that operate in our culture. The first rule is that the culture is run by white men. The second rule is the belief that there's something wrong with you that purchasing something will fix. The religion of our culture is consumerism. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the third rule is the belief in redemptive violence. You hit me, I'm going to hit you back, or I'm going to put you in jail for 100 years, or something like that. When we attended the conference this year with Richard Rohr, John Dominic Crossan, whose quote I, I've been leaving up on the announcement slide for a long time now, will probably leave it stay. John Dominic Crossan said that he used to say at the end of, of talks, peace be with you, but he said, I noticed that doesn't do any good. So uh, I'm going to say, go from here and practice distributive justice, and peace will take care of itself. I think that's my introduction. Oh, you're done? Mm -hmm. OK. <laughs> so a lot of what occupies my mind is how um, the human fits into the construct of nature's reality of the universe reality. And to me, what kind of knocks me on my, uh, off my feet, I should say, every time is just conceiving of this 14 billion year history of evolutionary time of which we are a part. We weren't placed here by an extraterrestrial god who just put us on a planet and said, now go forth and prosper. We were part of, we came up out of the same system that everything else came up out of. And it's a vast, complex system of chaos and order and creation and destruction. And it all has a purpose. It all, it, it's the intent, there's, there is an intent behind the motion of the universe. It operates the way it needs to operate in order for it to persist. So the Earth, if the Earth had cooled any faster or any, heated up any faster, we would not have Earth. We would not have what we know of as life today. If it had happened even just a 10 degrees higher or lower, we would not have life on Earth. So things happen at just the right time. There's a right moment for everything to evolve. Uh, there was a right moment for stars and galaxies to evolve. There was a right moment for consciousness to evolve. There was an exact right moment for us to evolve. Without these, the planetary formation, without life kind of evolving over this time, we would not have what we know of today as life. So each evolutionary stage must transcend and include the one before it. They're not separate. They transcend and include each other. The stars from the first galaxies became us. We're still receiving light waves from the Big Bang. Those light waves are making their way back to us. That's what powers, powers all light. And one of the things that we have to, as evolving consciousness, understand is to we also are part of transcending and including all that in, happens in our lives and that happens in our culture. So we also 
have to achieve this kind of wholeness. Wholeness is, um, the process of wholeness is atonement. And if you break up atonement at one mint, is the same thing. Feeling ourselves a part of everything as well as grounded in our own being, so independent as well as a part of, is part of that wholeness, part of that atonement. But we can't experience it unless we address the things that have kept us separate. And there's a lot that's kept us separate, not only divided within ourselves, but divided from one another and from the earth system itself, from nature. Jericho Brown says, you can't love me if you can't love all of me, my ancestry, my history, all of it. We have a pretty sordid history of separation in our country, one that we've never really grappled with. And I kind of feel like this is the exact right moment to be dealing with it, to be grappling with it. A lot of, I think, thinkers do think that right now. A lot of social commentators, a lot of social activists, a lot of uh, social philosophers think this is the moment when we need to be dealing with our separation. A word that I'd like to say on um, universe theory is that it operates on three principles, differentiation, specification, and communion. Differentiation, if, if, if after the Big Bang, the universe had stayed photon waves, just light waves. We never would have had the stars. So those light waves had to break apart to become the stars and the galaxies. Those stars had to break apart to release the particles that became human life form and other life forms. There's an exact right moment for differentiation to occur in every process of universe formation. The next theory is specification, which means uh, things became specified. Creatures became specified, planets became specified, stars became specified. And then the third theory is communion. These things have to work in harmony together. They have to operate as a community in order for orbiting the sun to continue, in order for night and day to continue, in order for plants to keep growing. So communion is not mashed up oneness, it's, it's harmony, it's working in harmony. And on a social level, differentiation can relate to individuation. What is the process of you becoming you and me becoming me? Specification is about consciousness. How do we get the ideas that we get? How do we um, become thinking, feeling, evolving human beings or any creature for that matter? And then communion is about integration not just social integration of races and cultures, but integration within the self, the wholeness that I was talking about. So communion is another way of talking about wholeness where many, many different parts become one whole. It happens in our bodies, right? There's many parts working in our body at the same time. Your heart is working right now to keep you alive. And everything is working in communion. That works on every level. That works from the very smallest level to the most vast, infinite level. Everything must work in communion in order for things to keep moving. Now with consciousness, <laughs> we also have the ability to make choices, right? And, and we have, with our consciousness, made some, ch some choices that work against nature that work against this nature of communion and integration. And we are, as many think, the, one of the first species to try and work against, to try to dominate uh, nature, to try and dominate what is. You were talking about this system of domination that we live in. Uh, one of the, we didn't talk about your yin-yang, but maybe we'll get back to it. One of the people that I've come to admire is a woman named Dr. Christina Cleveland. And she talks about what Bill was leading off with that in her American church upbringing, she did not see herself mirrored in Jesus or God because Jesus was always a white guy. And so what she learned as a, as a precocious young woman was, I'm not part of this system. She's, she didn't feel a part of the system because of the representation that was handed to her that the system kept perpetuating. 
So her work right now is about, um, about integrating the system and about pushing against the system that led us to separation. She uh, found the image of the black Madonna at some point in her life, and she writes about how she went on a pilgrimage to go find every black Madonna in Europe. And that was the first time that she felt she saw herself in, an, in a church image, in an icon of the church. Again, this is nature operates with integration. We as human beings have a choice about it. How are we going to operate within communion and working together as a whole rather than in separation? So if God or the cosmos is revealed in all that is, then there's no exceptions to that, none at all. It's not like God is most best revealed to, through the white patriarchy that our system has come to adore. It's revealed in everything, even the mosquito. Okay, I want to, yeah. I, I know, I think I know how you and Brian Swim would answer this question. Okay. I, I know how I would. But when you say that if the earth had been a little bit further from the sun, a little bit closer, nothing would have happened. It would have cooled at a different rate. Or, or it would, and it would, have, it would not have been able to support life. We wouldn't have way. this. Right. right. So the creationists say, oh, that proves God. It also pr pr proves that there's a, a perfect position for everything. Mm -hmm. Right? Thing, there's, so God did it. Maybe. It's there. Either way, it's there. To me, I have to say, to me, it's not important whether God came first and all of that happened or whether God emerged out of that same system. Mm -hmm. I don't have a strong need to know that God came first and mm -hmm. produced all that is. Mm -hmm. To me, what is sacred or what is holy or what is mysterious is that it is. Mm -hmm. And for me, I don't need this security that God came first and then everything came after that. To me, the mystery is already inherent in the actual being. Okay, and, and I would deal with that coming at the completely other side of the coin. Please do. And that is to say that since everything is related mm -hmm. to everything, mm -hmm. everything is related to everything, mm -hmm. relationship is part of what defines us and as human beings, and gives us meaning. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Therefore, the sacred is relationship. Yes. We were talking about this, maybe yeah. you're going to say it, that God is more of a verb. Right, but God is a verb. Right. This idea that something happens between us in that relationship where mystery occurs, where love occurs, the mm -hmm. things we can point at and not fully understand, that that is the action between the things that are interrelated. Mm -hmm. And we need everything that is in order to exist the way that we exist. Yeah, I, I, I believe this so firmly that mm -hmm. I said um, that if um, there's just one thing about my teaching mm -hmm. that I would like to be remembered here, just one thing, it is that God is not out there. Mm -hmm. And I think that a shift that's occurred for me regarding all of this since, and I'd say the beginning of it still is Ilya Delio, mm -hmm. until they go back to Ilya and, get, and reading that and everything else that you've introduced me to and that I've run across Michael Morewood and the other things that I'm reading in Zen. And um, it, it, it all confirms for me that the church is not going to go forward telling people that um, the lack of practicing distributive justice is sinful. That isn't going to work. You can't, you're not going to shame people into the... The lack of practicing distributive justice is stupid. Because in the long run, it hurts everything, including us. It works against it nature. It works against everything that yeah. is. Yeah. 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 So that um, when, we, when we don't recognize the system of domination that we're in, that's a way of participating and colluding in it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's a big talk in our government right now about the process of reparations. And um, regardless of where you fall on that political spectrum or whether you believe in reparations or not, 
It is essentially about repairing a relationship, repairing something between two bodies of people in this country, blacks and whites, and the ancestry that both of us, both black folks and white folks, are attached to in this country is one of separation. So the plea for reparations in my mind is really about asking to repair the relationship, to repair the God between us, mm -hmm. to turn to one another as long as we keep God out there. We'll stay separate from one another. You know what I think is a symbol for this? Mm, what's that? Harriet Tubman. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Let's use a symbol for it. For it's sure. a symbol. Yeah. So Adorner um, Truth. Hmm? Current symbols are Ta-Nehisi Coates. There's a lot of symbols for it. But tell me why you think Harriet Tubman is. Well, um, there was a move to buy, in like two or three years, have Harriet Tubman's picture on the $20 bill. Mm -hmm. It's gotten postponed for 30 years. Who did that? White men. White men. Mm -hmm. Why? They don't are afraid of losing power. It, it, the system doesn't want it. The mm -hmm. system and the part of the domination system. Mm -hmm. let, let me read to you just a little bit from yeah. um, uh, John Dominic Crossan and um, uh, Marcus Borg had a book called The Final Week. Um, I don't know if you've seen that book. It's a really great devotional kind of helpful book to read about the last week of uh, the life of Jesus. They've written two, I think, bookend books. Uh, I see them. They've written a book called The First Christmas, which is uh, interruption. <laughs> I read this week in the Christian century, somebody said, Jesus said that he would build his church and the gates of hell would not prevail against it. He didn't say that, but it's in the New Testament, it's Matthew 16, I think, where Cephas confesses Jesus as the Christ, and Jesus says, I'm going to give you a new name. Your name is going to be Peter, the rock, and on this rock I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. You've all heard that. And this Baptist preacher from North Carolina said, it won't be the, the, the gates of hell that prevail against the church. It will be ignorance. And he's talking about the very kind of stuff that we're talking about now, anti-scientism and anti-evolution and anti-justice talk being kept at arm's length from the church, not being relevant, not being talked about. Okay, here's what Mark Sporg and, and John Dominic Crossan say in the last book. What the Gospels really teach about Jesus' final days. Um, He's, they say there are three things that go mark a domination system. The first is political oppression. In domination systems, the majority of society is shut out from impacting any real change in the political system. The power rests purely in the hands of a very elite group of folks who seize control primarily through their wealth. The next feature of the domination system is, exploit, is economic exploitation, which in many ways is related to the first. Uh, economic exploitation exists on the back of laws of, uh, and societal structure. In, in essence, the powerful act to keep rules in place that disempower folks. Holly and I were talking yesterday, and I do not know where I got this information, but I read that if if you are a person who, after you have met your housing needs, you've paid your mortgage or your rent, and you have bought food, and you can take care of clothing, and you have access to transportation, those things, first of all, you're wealthier then than almost 90% of the world's population if you just have those four things. But if you have that, and in addition to that, you have 20 extra dollars a day to spend, you are among the top 10% of the wealthy people in the world. That's stunning mm -hmm. to realize. And, and, and that we participate in this system because we're in this system. Mm -hmm. <coughs> participate in it. Yeah. 
those who do the majority of the difficult work to place goods in the economic system ultimately only end up only a small percentage of the overall profit. And the final feature of the domination system is religious legit legitimization. This is exactly what it sounds like. It legitimizes the heavy-handed rulers by saying they are in positions of power by the work of God. Mm -hmm. God, I'm glad there's nothing like that going on right. in our country. Yeah, yeah. Well, just to say, just to uh, say a little bit more about the conversation about reparations, it's it's seeking to dismantle the domination system. It's seeking to dismantle a system that says here's the standard that everybody must meet, instead of and, and saying let's let's bring everyone, let's build tables instead of walls. And uh, Ta-Nehisi Coates, he's a brilliant writer and social commentator, and I highly recommend just Googling his remarks to the House on reparations or reading his Atlantic article on the case for reparations. Will you put that in the summary? I sure will. Um, he quoted a lot of data, but this is what most strikes me. The sheer numbers. Freed slaves were promised 40 acres and a mule, which none got. But collectively, they worked hundreds of thousands of acres of land. The average slave cost $800, and all told, a total of 10 million were worth over $8 billion in 1860, making them the single largest asset in the American economy. People an asset, not railroads, farm, goods, homes, but people. The labor contributed billions to the American economy, and their hands generated more product and more income for the landowners, contributing to individual wealth and then to the US becoming an economic superpower. So it's simply a fact that we've not dealt with some of these ghosts. We, we, there's no way around it. We just haven't dealt with this ghost. So no matter how, I, I was listening to an interview yesterday with Krista Tippett with an artist and a writer. And the artist's name I'm blanking on right now, but um, he said, no, he was with someone who said, well, you know, maybe Thomas Jefferson was a, was a genteel slave owner, a benevolent slave owner, because he fell in love with one of his slaves, had four children. This was the conversation that was happening. And he just paused and said, there's no such thing as a benevolent slave owner. The institution itself is violent. The institution itself is not benevolent. He went on to say, and I had never taken it to this next level, I've never heard of a, of a benevolent rapist. I've never heard of a benevolent child abuser. So when you put it in those terms, we don't, we don't use that terminology to talk about any other ill that happens in, to other people. Um, and I just, I, we're still, we are still operating under a domination system, and we still have sex and labor trafficking going on today which is a form of slavery. This is, it's not dead yet. Um, and this idea, again, of atonement or at-one-ment means reparation for a wrong or an injury. I wanted to read the, uh, the definition. OK. Regardless of where we stand, what is clear to me is that a relationship is broken and needs to be repaired. Repair means to fix or mend, to make good, to put right, heal or cure. We can't just throw money at our social ills. We need to work to heal them both from the inside to the outside. And what ta Coates talks about is, is, is addressing this shadow that looms over us. And I think that this is not just about repairing the black soul of America, but about repairing the white psyche to let go of the system of domination that we've participated in and created. And, and that's a pretty powerful call to me, that there can be a healing from the inside out that not only re repairs the, the interior world of a person, but also the exterior relationship between people. Mm -hmm. yeah. And what's required for that is, to me, to me two things, compassion. Mm -hmm and very gentle listening. And a daily spiritual practice. I would. <laughs> yeah, more wouldn't I disagreed about that. Uh, I, I come back again and again to something that Thich Nhat Hanh said right after 9-11, um, when he said, 
was asked, how would you deal with this? How would you deal with the people who perpetrated this horrible, indeed, horrible act, horrible act, no doubt about it. And, and uh, I will, it's hard for us to get in our heads that the people who did 9-11 in their minds were hitting back. They were not initiating something. They were hitting back. And um, Thich Nhat Hanh said that he would get all of the people who were involved in this, both those who perpetrated and those who were the victims of that, in a room together. And whereas I might want to blow it up, uh, hmm. he said that after a long period of silence, I mean a long period of silence, he would have somebody who felt victimized ask the question, why are you so angry with us? And just listen. Mm -hmm. There is a man who teaches at Georgetown in Washington, uh, African-American man who teaches history, whose name I cannot recall right now, but he wrote a book called Sermon, A Sermon to White America. And um, you can download this book on your Kindle. It's less than $10. I don't think you will be able to read it straight through. But I think that every white person in this country who can read ought to read that book. Because though I can never know what it is like to be African American in this culture, I can't know that. Um, we can be open to what that experience is and what this man writes about what his children's experience have been. His children, I think, are both MDs. He tells about their experience of growing up and how they were treated. It's much like that progressive spirit thing mm -hmm. that you read. Yeah. That's, that's a very painful thing yeah. to read. It is. It's painful to reckon with the shadow. Yeah. I, I think that's, that, and that, that pain, I think, is very real in all of us. And particularly, we can only talk about our own experience of, our, of wrestling with our own shadow. Um, I love Francis Weller's work. He's a psychologist, and he calls himself a soul activist. Um, he does a lot of eco-psychology and a lot of reclaiming the broken pieces of ourselves type of work. And he says, we need to reclaim the outcasts, not only in society, but the outcast part of ourselves. This is what the universe theory of communion means. Communion means reclaiming the outcasts and having a system where all belong. But that is inner work and that is outer work. We'll just say it one more time. It's inner work and it's outer work and it requires a daily spiritual practice. So the, <laughs> the woman who wrote that mm -hmm. article in Progressive Spirit. That was Christina Cleveland. And, and yeah. she said that, that what happened was, she lived in Alabama? Nope, she was a teacher at Duke University. No, I mean when she was growing up. When she you know, had I don't know. Here. I don't know. I think she lived in the South. Her, her parents Virginia. would go around and enroll the kids mm -hmm. in all the vacation Bible schools they could mm -hmm. when school was out because that was a cheap form of babysitting. Mm -hmm. So the kids would go to vacation Bible schools in all these various churches. And she, as like five years of age, mm -hmm. went to this church to go to vacation Bible school and had gone out to play on the playground and recess was up and she and her brother were caught up in swinging or tetherball. Playing tether a tetherball game. Tetherball or yeah. whatever it was. And the vacation Bible school teacher said, hey, nigger, come in here. This is a church. That was her introduction to being taught something at church mm -hmm. about herself. And this is the pain of not seeing herself represented in a church environment. Yeah. And learning that, well, there must be something wrong with me. There must be something wrong about my blackness. And the, the lifelong journey to reclaim that piece of her is what led her to the, this pilgrimage looking uh, for all the black Madonna paintings in, in Europe. She, has, she writes about it on her blog, actually. It's really fascinating. Yeah. So, um, I'm going backwards. You're trying. There you go. Uh, Sherry says I'm very trying. <laughs> Sherry said the sweetest thing to me the other day. She said, you know, we've been married for 36 years, and you've been like an anchor of me. I can see how that could work two ways. 
Well, actually, what she said was, you've always held me down. But that's kind of the same thing, isn't it? Everyone just send a little love Cherry's way right now. No, she really yeah. said I had two major faults. Uh -huh. One is I don't listen. Uh -huh. And the other is... Um, <laughs> okay. So yeah. here, here is the yin and yang. Yeah. So um, this is a wonderful symbol mm -hmm. of light and dark coming together, working together, dancing together, cuddling together. And you will notice that in the dark there's a spot of light, and in the light there's a spot of darkness. And I think knowing this to be true about us gives us a lifelong agenda. Knowing this to be true about our culture about our world gives us a lifelong agenda. And um, I'm still working on what it means to be a mystic. Some define a mystic as somebody who puts the experience of the sacred in front of everything else. Mm -hmm. And if that's true, I got a long way to go. Can I pause you for one second? Uh, Rabbi Lawrence Kushner says the ordinary mystic is one who has the nagging suspicion that there is a, universe, a unity at the heart of the universe. Right. So anyone can actually be a mystic. Okay. I like you that. You have that nagging suspicion. I, I, I love that unity thing because mm -hmm. that's, what, that's what this mm -hmm. is. And mm -hmm. our goal to experience integration or, or wholeness. A mystic is one who is aware that God is within and around. Mm -hmm. God is within and around. And who lives to appreciate that and to make that experience more frequent, more intense. Um, I, that's one, one of the things that I think that it means to be a mystic. Mm -hmm. Now, if we grant that we all have the spirit of God or sacred spirit within us, then I think that frees us up to begin to see other people as not bad, evil, or wicked people. People don't do, I mean, people do awful things, but it's not because they're awful. They do awful things because they're ignorant, just like you <laughs> and me. We all sometimes do really hurtful, bad things, but we know in our hearts that we're not bad people. We just forget, and when we act out of ignorance, we can do some damaging things. Okay. This is the, the central Christ metaphor also is in, in the yin-yang system, or symbol, I should say. This, the, we're so often taught to be afraid of the dark, and we translate that fear of the darkness into anything that's dark, right? That, uh, that dark is bad. So, but the dark has a lot to teach us, as you say. Mm -hmm. And I love this, the central Christ metaphor talking about that the, this integration, this transformation of dark into light, of light, learn, gleaning light from dark, is uh, the, the process through which we must all go in order to achieve individuation. Mm -hmm. uh, the, the book that I've loved so much is called The Christ Archetype, The Jungian Christ Archetype, and it, is, it, it states that we achieve full individuation when we have learned to integrate the tension of opposites. So the yin-yang system, uh, symbol, I don't know why I keep saying system, the yin-yang symbol is that tension of opposites. And holding that within is the symbol of individuation, the symbol of full uh, transformation. The man who wrote that book, mm -hmm. I've not read that book, mm -hmm, but great. I've read other stuff I yeah. have. Edward Edinger. Yes, yeah. He was the therapist to one of my best friends. Oh, really? Yeah. Lucky him. Mm -hmm. yeah. <laughs> That's some he hard work. He tells a lot of stories about <laughs> yeah. their their work together because it, it was a she who uh -huh. trained to become a Lucky union her. analyst yeah. and did her work with him. That's a he's he's not an easy writer to re understand. That book is actually pretty straightforward. The okay. the Christ archetype is like a 90-page book, lots of imagery in it and it's 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 actually a really good read. So Edward Edinger, The Christ Archetype is uh, it's a fantastic book and it really woke me up to some new ideas. Okay. Mm -mm. This one is called the Christ archetype. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. <laughs> so uh, I think maybe it would be helpful if we went public about our hesitancy to show that clip. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Do you want to say? 
Yours? Well, um, I didn't have a hesitancy about it. <laughs> I mean, it, 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 it's, it's really an, an interesting thing. I have, um, I have, over the years, had a lot of opportunity to work with other clergy and younger clergy who have talked about their hesitancy to say certain things in the church because they're fearful that they will get reprimanded or that it will hurt their career progress or something like that. And um, I don't feel that same constraint, um, either here or if I ever get to preach across the way, um, because I have nothing to lose. I mean, really. Um, but at the same time, I don't want to offend anybody. And really coming clear about some of the raw stuff that is being done in our system because of those shadow archetypes that I bring up uh, might be offensive to some of you. And I don't want to offend you. Uh, if you read a sermon of white America, it's going to be hard on you. Mm -hmm. If you go listen to the clip that Holly's going to put in the summary, it might take you back a bit. So we didn't want to offend anybody. But at the same time, um, a spiritual practice that does not lead into public place with compassion and wisdom is a, not a good spiritual practice. It's dead end. And if you read Richard Rohr's daily meditations, you read Joan Chittister talking about that this last week, about mm -hmm. the very fact that if you have a, a spiritual practice that does not take you to do social justice, your spiritual practice isn't doing its work. Right, right. Well, also, anytime we bring politics into a space that is also sacred, feathers get ruffled. And it's hard to be in both places at once, in a sacred space that is also profane. But we are almost always in the sacred and the profane. Sitting here with each other is both a sacred and a profane experience. And by profane, I mean secular. Everything is always sacred and profane. So, but politics gets tricky, and we're particularly in a time that is so divided among party lines. And issues have become divided among party lines. But I think what I'd like to invite us to think about is that reparation, just the basic word of reparations, repairing relationships, restoring our relationships with each other, is not a partisan issue. This is a human issue. This is the role that consciousness gets to play in our lives, that if we can listen to and evolve consciousness, then we also get to be restored, not only to the nature system, but to the human system that we belong to. And to me, that's, that's sort of the lens through which I try to hear anything that sounds remotely par partisan is, is that working toward restoring or is it working toward separating? And I, I, I just read an, um, an essay by Wendell Berry do we know who Wendell Berry is? He's a poet and... Um, He's a farmer. Yeah, he was a farmer, exactly. And he may be retired from the farming world now, but this, um, I was it was recommended to me to read his book, The Hidden Wound. It's about the damages done to the white psyche in participating in a domination system. And, and along the way of looking for this, I found an essay called The Unsettling of America. He makes this premise that America was founded on the uh, idea of exploitation. We exploited the land, we came searching for gold, we exploited the native people, we built a system of, of extraction, of pulling things out of the land and of extracting people from the land. He makes the comparison to the traditional farmer. A farmer sows, plants, nurtures, grows, and then feeds a community with what they grow, and then they replant, re-sow, re-grow, and re-give what they grow to the community. So one is nurturing and one is exploitative. And the invitation that I read from it is, how do we become like farmers? How do we become like farmers that are nurturing, growing, and sharing, 
rather than exploiting, taking, and hightailing it out of here with our goods. And I think that's, that's the invitation we have. He was, he was the man I heard first say that everything is sacred. Mm -hmm. We have just desecrated some of it. Mm -hmm. It's not that they're sacred and secular. And, and, and really and truly, you, you asked me a series of questions that I looked at late last night. One of them was, um, what keeps me awake at night? <laughs> My questions. Um, <laughs> one of the things is the divisiveness in this world. Mm -hmm. And, and um, I would like for what we do as a, as a class to contribute to community building. I think community building is probably the single most important spiritual practice of our time. That whether you're right or left or whatever, we are all part of the same family. And, and we better get that or it's going to do us in. Mm -hmm. I mean, I, that's, that's a I see us heading in a not good direction if we don't learn. What was it he said? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, <laughs> with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength and... Love, Love your, your neighbor, neighbor as yourself. if that neighbor were you. Yeah. yeah. Because the neighbor is you. Another um, prophet today that I love is Brian Stevenson. And he has started the program in Montgomery, Alabama called the Equal Justice Initiative and also has built the lynching. He himself didn't, but uh, conceived of the idea to build the lynching memorial. And his, his, challenge to American citizens is if we want to resolve an issue, we have to get proximate to it. So we have to get up next to it if we want to understand it, if we want to unpack it, if we want to dismantle it and repair it. And, uh, you know, my, my thinking is that we're already proximate to it. I mean, look around you. You're proximate. Like, look at the person next to you. God is right there. We're, we're proximate to God. We're proximate to one another. And all we have to do is kind of turn around and look at it. Turn around and look at it and wonder, what is it that's going on for you that might help me participate in the healing of the heart of the world or healing the heart of the universe? That, to me, is uh, an exciting invitation. So this next October, mm -hmm. uh, not this coming October, but October of 2020, Jackie Lewis is going to be here. Mm -hmm. And um, Jackie Lewis is one of four pastors at Middle Church in Manhattan. She's an African-American woman married to a United Methodist minister who is Anglo or Caucasian. And um, she spoke at this Roar conference and just blew the doors off. And... Inevitably, I've said this before in here, inevitably at a conference like this, the question comes up because the demographic of the conference looks very much like this class. The, demogra uh, the question comes up, how can we make this a more diverse group? And she didn't mince any words. She just said, how's diversity in your own life? Mm -hmm. That's how you do it. It's not that... You know, we need to go partner up with an African-American church when she comes. We could, but to make ourselves look better. Hmm. We need to do our own work. That's what Jung said. We get proximate to it. And get proximate to our neighbor. And, I and, literally got proximate. Well, I, you I literally like got in bed did. with it. <laughs> it literally did. I'm just kidding. You did. <laughs> I'm sure your parents are just <laughs> delighted about that. So. Not their choice. Yeah. No. So I guess we could have spent some time talking more about your experience, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave now. Yeah. Well, this has been lovely with you. I hope it was lovely for I you mean, guys. I'm I mean, You're, I'm leaving now. Oh, I'm what, forever? Oh, for to. I'm what? leaving. <laughs> what are you saying? You're confusing me. Goodbye, Bill. I love you. I, <laughs> I'm, yeah. I am uh, on Wednesday going yes. for our third uh, leg of the Camino trip with Peter Sills. We'll be going from all to Santiago. All the, all the way to the end of the world is what they say yeah. this time. All you the know, they say the now sea. there's no end of the world. It's round. <laughs> Well, I know it's not flat. 
Because if it were flat, cats would have knocked everything off. That's right, now. just with their little paws. <laughs> there are people who actually believe that, but yeah. anyway. Yeah. Yeah. You know, uh, it, it, I had this thought too. Um, early Christians longed for the end of the world. Because they still think God is out there. And they thought, no, they thought it meant the, 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 uh, the day, of, uh, a day of justice would arrive. Hmm. It would be the end of the world. In the, the, when Jesus talked about the end of the world, he didn't mean the end of the world, like he's going to come back and something. He meant the end of the domination system, the end of the Roman Empire hmm. of injustice. That was going to come to an end, and what they experienced in their first community would spread all over the world. Mm -hmm. That's what he meant. Mm -hmm. No, I just meant I'm leaving ordinary life in your hands yes. for a month. I'm going to go away. The, uh, the, there will be a blog on yeah. the Ordinary Life website about the trip. Yeah. And um, are you doing that as a separate or within the blog? Which did you decide? To well, you for? you wanted me to do it within oh, the blog. I don't care which way you. And do it. I always do what the women in my life <laughs> tell me to. I just want it to be easy for you, Bill. So um, I will be, I'll teach the next two Sundays, and then I'm um, bringing in a friend, Dr. Cleve Tinsley. He co-directs Project Curate with Matt Russell, and he and I are going to have a dialogue together. And then um, a guy from Justice for Our Neighbors, which this class has supported in the past, will come tell us more about the work that Justice for Our Neighbors is doing. That's early August, and then you'll be back. I'll be back. I'd like to say one more thing that Richard Rohr said. Okay. or wrote in his, in his meditation. And I love this because I think it is, again, an invitation to us. People who learn to expose, name, and still thrive inside contradictions are what I would call prophets. Let's go be prophets. Yeah, and the, and the, and the prophet is um, not about somebody who foretells the future. Mm -hmm. A prophet is somebody who speaks the truth. Mm -hmm about this is what's going on, pay attention. And Jesus was in that prophetic, Hebrew prophetic tradition. And so he, he had one foot. Oh, what I love about these people, Roar, and, Roar <laughs> and, and Joan Chittister uh, would be two prime examples. They're people who are firmly within their tradition mm -hmm. and they criticize it, but jabbers out of it. Mm -hmm. At the same time, I think that's a pretty good stance to so take. So you can love something and still criticize it? Should, can I say that to Josh? <laughs> no, I, what I would say, I was going to say, as soon as you said that, you can love somebody, something and criticize it as long as you're not married to them. That's and right. Then, <laughs> I wouldn't do, I wouldn't do that. That's right. I wouldn't do that. Yeah, okay. I love you all, and remember, no matter where you go this week, no matter what happens, you carry precious cargo. So watch your step, and I'll see you. Holly, I'll see you next week. I'll see you in a month. Thank, Thank you. you. <laughs>